Welcome to the Innovation and Technology Management Seminar Series hosted by the Engineering Management Program in the Pratt School of Engineering at Duke University. My name is Jeff Glass and I'm the Faculty Director for the Engineering Management Program. The purpose of our seminar series is to introduce engineers and scientists to various business and management concepts that they will find useful throughout their careers. Speakers represent a diverse array of industries from finance and information technology to materials processing and biotechnology. If you'd like to learn more about the Engineering Management Program at Duke, including these podcasts and any associated audiovisual materials that are sometimes available, please visit our website at memp.duke.edu. Thanks for your interest in our series, and please do not hesitate to contact us with suggestions or questions. It's a pleasure to welcome you to the inaugural podcast presented by Mr. Joseph Holmes, CEO of Acuity Edge. Acuity Edge is a management consulting firm providing strategic consulting, innovation management, market research, and partnership development. From startups to Fortune 500 clients, Mr. Holmes has provided many of the services required to commercialize client innovations. He has assessed more than 100 technologies in detail, screened over 500 technologies, and has managed the technology transfer of portfolios that total nearly 1,000 inventions. His work has culminated in 100 licensing agreements. Today, he's going to introduce a framework for thinking about how to commercialize technology and tips for evaluating and marketing new ideas. Glad to see uh, each of you today. Um, as we get started, raise your hand if you're in my CTI class. Okay, so we have some of the home crowd here. And raise your hand if you are not an MEM student. Okay, so we have a few, few outsiders. Uh, thanks for coming. I look forward to talking to you today about, um, re really to some extent, it's an executive summary of my class talking about how to commercialize innovation and sort of the, the process trying to demystify. You've got an innovation, you've got a new idea. How might you move forward uh, in the marketplace with it? How do you screen it? Um, how do you assess it? How do you uh, identify it further? Uh, one thing I'm going to do is I'm, I'll probably spend 10 minutes or more telling you a little bit about my uh, background so those people in my class can I'll wake you up when this part is over. Uh, and I really want to uh, tell you how I got into commercialization and also um, uh, why I got engineering degrees, how I got an MBA, because really my background is very similar to yours. Um, and so I'll get into that now. Uh, I actually, in spite of the Boston accent that you sense here, I'm a native of North Carolina. I grew up in a small town about 50 miles south of here uh, called Olivia, very rural town, and uh, knew I was good at math and science and wanted to go into engineering. So I went to, um, was accepted here at Duke, but decided to go to NC State and majored in uh, uh, materials engineering and electrical engineering. So I got those two degrees together. I couldn't really choose between the two and thought it would be a very interesting uh, educational mix. Um, backing up from that a bit, I was, I guess, maybe about a sophomore, and I was in a uh, thermodynamics class. And uh, raise your hand if you've had thermodynamics. So if you're engineers, many of you have. Okay, so raise your hand if you thought it was a thrilling class. So you're not going to get many hands in this case. So, so not the most thrilling class you can have. So imagine thermodynamics at 7.30 in the morning, three days a week. So, so as you might guess, that's one of these classes you want to put your head down. So I come into class, and anybody in my class who's seen emails from me, you'd venture to guess that I'm not a morning person. So it made it even that much tougher for me. So I come into class, and all of a sudden, here comes bouncing in this, this young, energetic professor that was really enthused, and I'm not sure what was more impressive, that he was enthused at 7.30 in the morning or enthused about thermodynamics. But anyway, the guy's name was Jeff Glass. So he was uh, uh, one of my earlier professors at NC State, uh, thought a lot of him, and that was my first connection with Jeff. So um, uh, got to know each other some. So fast forwarding a bit, I graduate from NC State. Uh, but the year before I graduated, I did a uh, 
guess it wasn't a co-op, it was an internship. So in my internship, I did work with Kobe Steel, and as you probably remember from Jeff's background, uh, he was the uh, uh, like VP of R&D at Kobe Steel, and so uh, got to know him there, and then when I got uh, out, entertained various job offers, and really wanted to stay within the area, got a job offer from Kobe Steel, and so I, that was my first job. So not only was he an uh, early professor of mine, but he was one of my first bosses. And I worked at Kobe Steel for six or seven years before that division shut down and I made a job change. Um, the interesting thing about working at Kobe uh, was that there I was 100% engineer, as many of you are until you're going through this program, you know, smelling the solder, doing R&D, getting patents. At Kobe, as you may know, we worked on synthetic diamond for electronics. And what was interesting about my time at Kobe Steel, half of the time, if, let's say I was there seven years, the first three and a half years, I would say we were very much a technology push type of company. So technology push, uh, raise your hands, somebody uh, tell me what technology push is in your vernacular. Anybody want to define technology push? Somebody in my class ought to be able to. Okay, I'll do it for you then. Technology push is where you've got a technology and you're a little less market focused and you're, uh, no matter what, you're trying to push that into the marketplace. So our business was diamond. So we weren't going to do anything besides diamond. We were working on these diamond transistors, field effect transistors to be specific, and we wanted to find somewhere to apply them. So what was interesting though, um, at the same time I was evolving my career, Jeff was in his career as well, and so you know, he began to ask some hard market questions. I don't think he'd gotten his MBA by then, but um, you know, he started to ask us internally as well as to, to the mother company, well, you know, I wonder how many people would want a diamond transistor. And these diamond transistors, their claim to fame was that they would work at high temperatures. I think maybe, uh, in fact, one of my early papers was the highest temperature performing uh, diamond field effect transistor. It worked at like 500 degrees Celsius. Well, you know, who needs a diamond transistor that works at 500 degrees Celsius? The answer is not, you know somebody? Uh, <laughs> Pardon? Okay, well, good, good. Well, I, I wish there were more people like you because we couldn't find that many people when we were at Kobe. So, uh, in fact, uh, one of the more interesting projects, I think there was some project about uh, putting it on a NASA probe that was destined for the sun. So you could make one, one transistor. I'm sure you could sell it for a lot. But a market of one units per year was not really a market we thought would be of attractive to Kobe Steel. So uh, for various reasons, we thought working on diamond transistors was maybe not the smart move for the company. So we went through this big um, internal reorganization and change where we looked inward and tried to become more market pull, asking the question, who, well, we were still a little bit pushed in that we were, we were wed to diamond, but we asked ourselves, who needs the things that diamond can provide benefit for? So we completely reorganized from a group structure to a team structure. We uh, uh, broke into teams, and some people were looking at diamond for electrodes, diamond for acoustic devices, uh, uh, maybe even looked at uh, thermal heat sinks and maybe cutting tools, though that really wasn't our bag so much. So when the smoke cleared, we worked on various projects, uh, the main one being uh, acoustic uh, devices on diamond, using a whole different set of properties. And as a company, we just basically evolved from this tech push to a market pull uh, approach. Uh, one of the things that was very key in that process is uh, there was a book called Winning at New Products. Raise your hand if you've heard of that book. If you've taken Jeff's class, 
you really should raise your hand because I'm sure he's mentioned it. Uh, Robert Cooper is the guy that's the uh, author of the book. Well, Jeff, he was handing out these books at Kobe, like the Gideons hand out Bibles. Everybody got a copy, and our job was to read it and really embrace the concepts. And those concepts were to, to you know, think about the customer, put the customer per- first, think about the voice of the customer, and try to uh, not just develop something for development's sake, but do it in reaction to customer need. And to this day, Robert Cooper uh, is still publishing and doing a lot of research in the area of new products. So uh, anyway, that was an interesting experience. And then um, the division we worked at shut down, and we had a very unique experience. Jeff negotiated us like a year's severance. So you had a year to figure out what you were going to do. You could either immediately get a new job, pocket a year's salary, or you could kind of hang out for a year in the other extreme and kind of have a year off, and then you turn off the lights at the company after they shut down a lab, and then you go off and find a job. Um, and it was interesting to see how different people uh, handled that differently. Uh, I tried to hustle up and get a job pretty soon, and so I wanted to stay locally, and at the same time, I had two decisions to make. And by the way, I got a master's in material science somewhere in this process, just to further my education. Um, and in making that decision, I wanted to remain technical because I already had the two technical degrees and wanted to maintain that. But increasingly, particularly after reading this Winning at New Products, I felt this pull more towards the business side, the, you know, the dark side if you're an engineer, right? So I felt the pull towards business, but not enough at the time to get an MBA. In fact, I remember going into Jeff's office and, and other managers that I had at the time and said, well, you know, what do you think about going back to school? I'm thinking about getting a master's in engineering, but there's a, a master of science and management program at state. And I think even this program was just getting started maybe at the time. Um, it wasn't it maybe quite as well branded at the time. Um, so I couldn't quite decide what to do, decided to go the technical route, which was at the time the right, the right choice for me. So... Um, when I was looking for a job, however, I knew I wanted to take a step towards business, but it's not like I had an MBA. So I, you know, I had to be careful in, in, in what I did so I didn't just start over in my career. So I saw a job, job advertised at um, Research Triangle Institute, which is now known as uh, RTI International. And that job was to help NASA um, commercialize their ideas. I thought, you know, that sounds pretty cool. And it also sounds like I can put one foot in technology and one foot in business and uh, kind of have the best of both worlds. So I uh, applied for the job, got good references, got the job, and so then that was kind of the launch of the next phase of my career. There I was an account manager in charge of keeping the client happy for various NASA centers. Uh, at RTI, we worked for five of the ten NASA centers uh, across the nation, and there we would work with innovators to help them commercialize their ideas. So what did that entail? Um, you've got a researcher uh, at NASA who comes up with a bright idea, uh, they're supposed to fill out an invention disclosure, submit it to a tech transfer office. Much like your researchers here at Duke submit forms to your Office of Science and Technology, maybe it's called today, it changes name sometimes. So they submit those ideas, th- those would be run through our firm at the time, and we would help to evaluate whether those ideas had commercial potential. And as you might guess, an organization the size of NASA, more ideas flow through the tech transfer pipeline than one can afford to follow up on. So you have to make up some hard decisions. For every 10 ideas that come in, maybe you can afford to follow up on two of them. So you know what processes do you use to figure that out? That's part of what we'll talk about today. Um, so I worked at RTI, I did that for a few years, and um, really enjoyed it, but I started thinking, you know, that was when the entrepreneur was coming out in me, and I thought, you know, this is fantastic, but I've kind of turned the crank here. I think I can do this on my own. 
I had a colleague of mine that was considering leaving at the time. He left before me, and then I, I left and started my own consulting practice, but largely worked through him. A guy named Rick King started a practice named Prefight Ventures. There was really my immersion into new venture market. There I started working with uh, almost exclusively entrepreneurs. Our, our passion was working with young, uh, exciting startup companies, helping them to take their ideas and to maybe uh, sell their idea early, you know, license intellectual property, property do early stage mergers and acquisitions, uh, that type of work. And did, we did a lot of training, teaching entrepreneurs how to uh, give their pitch to, to get venture capital, for instance. So that was a great immersion into new ventures. And it's, a very, it's very different than academia, very different than uh, uh, you know, big business like IBM, GE, DuPont, you know, large companies. It's its own sort of economy and infrastructure. And after, after doing that uh, for a while, I really just kind of grew my own practice, worked less with pre-flight ventures, and uh, Acuity Edge is the name of my practice today. So in closing about my career, you know, what's my business about? I, I teach this class at Duke, but that's uh, not my day job. My day job is running a consulting firm. So my business, uh, on my website I list six services, but it really falls, for introduction's sake, into two primary areas. One I call innovation management. And the second I call business strategy assistance. So what are they? Uh, innovation management is really this whole notion of how do you take an idea and extract value from it in the most general sense. Um, in the most general sense, that's what I do. Probably 70% of the time that involves finding an idea that an entrepreneur or most often a large firm or large uh, university has and helping them to license that to someone else. Because people like a NASA or even a Duke University you know, they're not out making products, obviously. You, they take their inventions, kind of bottle them up, license them to somebody else, and then they make a quarter on every dollar of profit that the other person makes, or whatever the ratio might be. There's a lot of variance there. So uh, that's one side of the camp of what I do. The other side is kind of classic business strategy assistance. So what does that mean? I help entrepreneurs with, and large businesses with all types of plans, business plans, marketing plans, uh, strategic plans, uh, I help them write offering memoranda to sell their firms, uh, annual reports, things of that nature. Um, it oftentimes centers around reports, but uh, uh, for instance, two jobs I'm doing right now, I'm helping a, uh, uh, someone with like a $20 million company to sell their firm to a, uh, some foreign entity yet to be identified. So we're going through uh, uh, advertising the firm, doing things of that nature. Uh, I'm helping somebody to, uh, a smaller inventor, to help sell a patent into the boating industry uh, and various other things. So that gives you a feel for uh, who I am, how I'm connected to the program, and the, the types of things that I do. And in particular, how I'm connected with uh, Jeff and Brad. And then uh, raise your hand if you've taken Yesco's class. I don't even know the name. Yesco von Windheim. A couple people. Okay. And, and so you'll probably see some similarities there, too. So um, as far as what we're going to talk about today, well, we may not talk about it much. Or talk is maybe all I do. Okay, I'll just, I'll just do it from back here. Um, here's what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about my uh, thoughts on commercialization and innovation. We'll do that through first talking about the Innovation Edge framework. This is a framework that I developed uh, maybe it was about a year and a half ago, built upon a whole career of, of thoughts and readings and plannings. And um, it culminated in an article that I put in Business Week. And then actually it's uh, foundation may be a bit strong, but it's one of the cores of the things I teach in my class 
it's not a framework that I shove down anybody's throat in the class, but I do uh, reference it from time to time to tell people, here's a way to think about innovation. So I'll present that today. And then also I'll go through sort of a top ten list of things that I think are important in innovation, in particular things related to um, screening innovations and evaluating innovations if you've got you know, a lot of them to consider. And uh, anyway, and this is, this is my daughter. I try to think of a way to weave her in the presentation, but other than just showing her off, I couldn't think of a reason. So um, anybody in my class, if you, if you at some point tell me that she looks like me, then you get bonus points at some point. Because as, as a father, you really like that kind of thing. So uh, one other thing about my perspective, one thing that you should remember, uh, you get lots of people coming through here giving you their two cents worth, and I'm sure you've, this is not the first uh, presentation you've heard on innovation, right? You've been hearing things from uh, venture capitalists, attorneys, professors. You've probably heard from lots of you know, consultants, lots of different people. So you should always think about somebody's perspective. And whatever they tell you, you have to remember that perspective because what they say are the do's and don'ts and the why's and why not's are all a function of that. So one of the key things that has shaped my career is a, a job that I started in 2001 where I was working for the University of um, Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Raise your hand if you're an alumnus or alumna of uh, UIUC. We've got at least one. One wins the prize. Um, so it's a very well-known university. It's the fourth leading university in terms of getting research and development funds. In 2001, the state of Illinois had looked inwardly, or sort of slide, saying we need to innovate more. You know, we have a little bit of a brain drain going on, people not staying in state, we don't have enough economic development, so what's going on? So as they analyzed, they said, well, you know, we've got a fantastic university receiving all this R&D funding, but why aren't we providing any innovations out? Why aren't we out licensing, for instance? Well, it turns out that the, uh, and this is, uh, I'm not the one saying they were broken, self-prescribed. Self um, University of Illinois realized that their tech transfer program was just really just broken. They were collecting IP in, but it wasn't getting out. And what was worse is they, they weren't even, um, they weren't even telling the professors, well, look, just don't send us any more innovations. They were just piling up. In some cases, when, when they just felt enough pressure, they would still go ahead and file a patent, but not, you really should file a patent in reaction to thinking there's a market need. You don't just file it to be filing a patent because it's fairly expensive, expensive as you might know. Um, in other cases, they just let the innovations just pile up. So they had as many as 700 pieces of IP, some issued patents, some applied patents, some just invention disclosures, some probably ideas from a suggestion box, not many of those. But, so all these things had piled up, and they're like, so you've got two problems. Excuse me. You've got this backlog of innovation. You've got to figure out what to do with it, number one. More importantly, number two, how do you fix the broken engine so that it doesn't turn into 1,400 or you know, more? So that was what was posed to uh, Deloitte Consulting and Twintech, some partner firms of mine, and then I got involved in the job. So myself and Laura Shoppy, a partner of mine, um, you know, got a, a rather large contract to work with the University of Illinois three years to figure out what we could do. And so, uh, and actually we spent a summer, and I'll probably skip over these details, working with students like yourselves to screen through these 700 pieces of IP and uh, trying to figure out how to make heads or tails of what had commercial value. So what basically happened is we stepped through a process, uh, as you see in this kind of funnel diagram, in 2001. We did strategy and organization, worked all the way down through and cut deals, and it culminated in 100 license agreements and 25 startups. And here I've got, you know, loosely said, millions of dollars to the client. Um, we're still 
determining, sort of quantifying how much value is returned to the client, but we've got at least one deal that, that paid for the $3 million effort where um, you, you may have heard of carrot licensing and stick licensing. Carrot licensing is where you go up to somebody and say, I've got a new innovation, wouldn't you like to license it from me? And so you dangle a carrot is the idea. Whereas stick licensing is where, let's say somebody is infringing on your intellectual property. Now you could just go out and sue them, but it's a, you know, a little cooler to go up to them and say, you know, uh, I have some, my reason to believe that you're infringing on my intellectual property, but you know what, we're all friends here. Um, why don't you take a license, preferably paying the back pay of what you should have been paying all along, and um, we'll just call it a day. Nobody needs to sue anybody. And so we had at least one of those jobs that kind of paid for the whole effort and, and money continues to flow in. So needless to say, this was a, a great experience for me. So I'll, it was the culmination of a lot. I mean, to get from 700 down to um, uh, 100 license agreements and a lot of startups, you kind of go through a lot of experiences. So that, that really has an imprint on my, uh, my background. Uh, I mentioned my line partners. Um, and the other key experience I've uh, mentioned already. So that's influencing what I'm talking about today. Um, very quickly, I posed this question in my class and didn't get a lot of resonance, but I'm, I'm hoping with this size group maybe we'll get a little bit more. Um, who wants to take a stab at what's the difference between innovation and invention? Yes? Very good, very good. So you're quick study there. Exactly. So in my vernacular, innovation is invention plus something else. And depending on how you want to look at it, and these aren't completely equal, invention plus commercialization. Invention is just the idea of coming up with something novel. You come up with something that's unique, um, that's useful, not obvious, and novel. Um, but there's no guarantees that it can be useful or that it makes money. And we'll talk about it in a minute, exactly how many patents uh, we think make money. Uh, maybe a better way to think about it is innovation is invention plus value extraction. So somehow you get value out of it. Um, these are pretty much equal, but like for instance, if you, if you uh, come up with a new invention, it's the basis of a company. The company gets sold and you make money, but it's still incubating and, and, you're, and it's still kind of following through in its commercialization life. Value's been extracted, but you know, an argument could be made whether or not it's truly been commercialized. Commercialization really implies that it's um, something's gone the whole gamut from idea to a product that's meeting somebody's needs in kind of customer product form. Um, but either way, I, I'll take that as a decent definition. So the idea with innovation, there has to be improvement. It's not sufficient just to have novelty. And that, that is a difference. So one thing I think about is sort of a value pyramid where creativity would be the base. You have to have a creative culture that then might lead to innovate, invention, rather. And then invention can lead to innovation. And so the idea here, though, is that innovation would sort of be at the top of the food chain. And I'm sure you learned that in a lot of your classes. Um, and by the way, we'll post these slides. You don't have to write down feverishly. But I mean, here are just, in, in fact, I didn't even go into a tremendous amount of depth. Just through Googling and some of my own references, you know, ask myself the question, how tough is it to succeed commercially? You saw in the abstract that I wrote up for you, I said something like nine in 10 businesses fail. Well, what does it mean to fail? What does it mean to succeed? Where do you get the numbers? Well, it, it's anybody's guess, but at least some other people have made these type of comments. I thought you'd find them interesting. Uh, on the web, you'll see people talking about less than 1% of patents making money, you know, generous estimates or 2 to 3%. Um, and then uh, Clay Christensen in Michael Rayner's book, The Innovator's Solution, uh, raise your hand if you're familiar with that book. I'm 
I'm sure that many of you are. Okay, well, more of you should read it. Um, I would say in, in, when you think about seminal texts related to innovation, there, there are probably four or five that come to mind, and uh, this is definitely one of them. There's a, there's a pair. There's the Innovator's Dilemma, and then naturally, five years later, there was the Innovator's Solution. Um, he's got maybe the best, uh, what do you call them, footnotes in a book. At the end of every chapter, he has end notes, I guess you'd call them, that, that give detailed notes about the chapter. He's got like a, maybe a page or two of notes on defending why only one in ten companies succeeds in the marketplace. And uh, this reference down here from Jim Collins, Good to Great Book, which is another classic, um, is mentioned. So what's the bottom line here? Well, let's cover a few more. Uh, one of my favorite texts on commercialization is this Commercializing New Technologies from Vijay Jolly. It's uh, maybe a decade old now, but it's... Um, very good book. They talk about only 1.5% of NASA's patents being commercialized, 5% of other government patents. Uh, and then, um, actually, I think Greg Stevens may have given a lecture here before, Winnovations, and uh, tying it back into MEM, his nephew is Todd Stevens, who's a graduate of the program. But anyway, he's got an article in uh, RTM that talks about it takes 3,000 raw ideas to get to a commercial success. So if all of us uh, put an idea in the suggestion box today, we're not even going to have one, statistically speaking. So it's a tough game. So that's the reason we're you know, having this talk today. So here's the cover of several books, um, and I, I won't pepper you with many other questions. I think you're a little tired today. So uh, what do these books have in common? Uh, I'll go ahead and give you the idea. The idea is that all these books are related to innovation. And one of the reasons why I was excited about teaching uh, my class is that I think it's important that a student to innovation read across different channels. And uh, it always amazes me how people in a given field will only focus on uh, one of these topics. For instance, um, you know, R&D, fourth generation R&D is a well-known book in this field. And if people are, if you're a VP of R&D, I suspect you probably read that. But guess what you probably haven't read? You, you haven't thought about new product development. Um, and this is the winning new products book that I told you that, that Jeff was a fan of uh, years ago. Then there's new ventures, entrepreneurship. Um, uh, this book, oh, is it New Venture Creation by Jeffrey Timmons, is a sort of a classic in the field that if you're taking an entrepreneurship class, there's probably about two texts most people choose, and this is one of them. Um, and so it, in that book, it talks a lot about uh, you know, how to develop business plans and pro formas and things like that. Um, tech transfer. Um, there's another book in the field by Phil Spezer, and tech transfer is mainly, uh, you know, it's large corporations to some extent, but largely government organizations and universities care about tech transfer. Um, and then you got in independent inventors, you know, the, the Joe Schmo who you, you know, hear about on Oprah that's made, you know, $10 million because they had a it and it, uh, you know, they sold it online or something. And what's interesting is, uh, you know, in the new product development circles, PDMA, Product Development Management Association, you've got all that crowd that hangs out together and they read the same things. Um, you know, new ventures, you've got organizations like CED, Tech Transfer, Licensing Executive Society in Autumn, uh, it's an association for university technology managers, and, and, and it goes on, Inventors Digest. So, so everybody's talking the same language, but nobody's talking together. So, so it would behoove you, if you can, I mean, you don't have to read everything, just a few things across these different dimensions, and you can learn a lot. Um, the one thing I did before I left Kobe Steel, we had 500 bucks that we could spend um, 
on professional development. And so I went and asked somebody. I said, um, I was trying to think about something long-term I could do with it. I said, well, can I buy books with it? And they said, well, yeah. I don't know that anybody else much is buying books, but sure, you can do that. And so uh, a good portion of these books that I'm referencing today were books that I bought when I left Kobe. And uh, I would say of the things that have influenced my career, reading those books in the library I've built since then is probably a good 20% of the value that I think I bring to clients. You know, the MBA had its place, engineering degrees, work experience. But knowing, and I don't mean just, you know, reading it like a romance novel. I mean, studying these books and really getting at the heart of what they're about really sets you apart from, from other people. Um, so we've talked about this. So now let me talk quickly. Yes? Winning at new products. Yes. Uh, Robert Cooper. And uh, if you want a quick read, if you go to um, Business Source complete at your library and look for Robert Cooper. He has a lot of shorter articles if you didn't want to read the whole book. Um, anyway, um, so the Innovation Edge, what is this framework? This is a framework that I developed a little bit because there were some things about stage gate models that, that um, I just didn't feel completely in tune with. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of a stage gate model. Okay. Yeah, you better raise them high if you've been in Jeff's class, because I know he covers that in his class. And so that's, a lot of that comes out of Cooper's work and other people. So what is a stage gate? Stage, you know, the stage means you do some activity, some work, and then the gate means you make some decisions, and then you continue and continue. And the idea is that that sort of has, it builds and has a crescendo from ideation to product launch. And I, I think a, a stage gate model is fabulous. The, the only problem is it's a little on the linear side. You know, because it tends to suggest sometimes that you do more homework up front and, and less downstream when you should be doing your homework all along. And that's a little bit of an uh, over-exaggeration, but that's kind of the way I feel about it. So uh, what I've developed here without reading all of this is what I consider to be a little bit more of a compass. Looking from the inside out, I look at this diagram from the inside. It would be like concentric circles, but I drew them in squares instead. Um, from the inside out, what, are th what do I need to keep at the center of my process? What are things I need to think through when I consider innovating or when I consider working on a client's project or if I have a new idea? You know, like every day when you wake up, what things should you think about? So that's what this process is about. So uh, when you define what something is, I think it's often handy to say what it's not. So it's not a step-by-step -step process. I had a student ask me, say, well, I'm having a little trouble following. Do I start here? Do I spiral around? It's not that kind of thing at all. This is... The idea here is it's almost like a checklist that for every topic you could have a question and those are the questions you should keep top of, top of mind so that you don't forget what's important in commercialization. Um, it's not linear and it's clearly not the only thing to use. Um, I've already mentioned the sort of stage gate versus this process. Stage gate is uh, very linear and definitely has its place. Uh, and this I would consider to be a little more nonlinear. You, know, you could think of this as a map and this is, is more of a compass. Um, and as you see from the builds here, I'm not going to step through this in detail here, um, is, I think of this from the inside out. Uh, in fact, let me just skip to the next slide because I will uh, talk about these in more detail. So let's talk about the center of the process. I call it Evolve. And as you might guess, there's a bit of marketing in this too. I call it Edge. The name of my firm is, the name of my firm is Acuity Edge, so that took a little work. Um, so Evolve is talking about you've got an idea. You want to extract value from it. And this is just a, a little a cute way of showing that you should always go through a customer and keep the customer at the center. 
So, for instance, if you only remembered one thing from this lecture, not that hopefully you have to hear it from me to understand this, you've got to keep the customer at the center of your process. And what's funny is I'm sure anybody who's talked to you about not just innovation but business always this is the core of their sermon, right? You keep the customer at the center, talk to the customer, learn the customer's needs, get, exceed their expectations and all of that. But you would be amazed how many people drift and fall short of listening to their customer. And in innovation in particular, where, in fact, all of us are technologists at heart, I would be uh, venture to say, you, you say, yeah, yeah, the customer's important, but I got the best technology. But oftentimes, you know, sort of like, you know, uh, beta, max, and VCRs, that kind of stuff, VHS. It's not always the best technology that wins, so no point in belaboring that. But um, always go through the customer. And um, the reason I call it evolve, which might seem a bit strange, is that it's a process that, that gradually changes over time. It's not something that's you know just eureka, everything changes. Uh, I don't know the, the statistics on it, but I'd venture to say most people who come up with a new idea, they are not going to... If they commercialize that idea, it's not the idea they came up with. There may be some similarities, but it's not the same uh, because things need to change over time, and you need to acknowledge that. So what do I mean by drive? The idea is there are certain, to some extent, intangible things that should sort of drive you along during the process. So what are those? Uh, we've got them four E's here to help with the, the memory. Environment. Um, you've got an environment internal to your organization. Let's say you're at, you're at a company, you have a new idea. You better understand your internal environment as well as your external environment to know to what extent you're going to be able to commercialize your idea. If internally nobody supports new ideas, then you have to make a choice. I'm either going to maybe either table my idea, I'm going to leave the firm and start it up on my own, I'm going to do it on the side, or I'm going to be bold enough to go to my boss and say, hey, you know, I've got a new idea, you mind hearing what it is. Uh, but certain firms are more accepting to new ideas than others. Um, a lot of people pay lip service to being accepting of ideas, but a lot of people aren't. Um, enthusiasm. It, things that people don't realize is one of your best first screens in innovation is finding out if you're working with somebody who cares about the innovation. Uh, for instance, if, if I were doing work at Duke University working with professors, I would not force every professor to fill out an invention disclosure. I would not force them to be in tune with the commercialization process. I'd raise my hand and say, hi, I'm Joey Holmes. I do commercialization work. If you need help with commercialization, or this is really the, the job of your OST, um, if you need help with commercialization, we are here, we're ready to help. But if you don't, you know, it was sort of nice knowing you. Because if somebody's not engaged in the process, it's, it's never going to work. Execution. The reason I talk about execution here instead of strategy, other than it begins with an E and not an S, is that um, I think most people would agree that there are different strategies that can take you to success, but it's really execution get, that gets you there. Uh, one time, Rick Wagoner came to my MBA class when I was here at Duke, um, the CEO of General Motors, which maybe is not the best guy to quote these days. Uh, but anyway, he definitely made the comment that it's better to ha he'd rather have, how did he put it, a B strategy and A execution that beats the reverse any day of the week. Um, and though maybe he's not the best example now, I believe that as well. Uh, and then evaluation, I'll talk more about that next. You should continually, incessantly, always evaluate your ideas. You know, this notion of we're going to take six months and evaluate and then we're going to move on and commit, 
doesn't make any sense at all. You, want, you have to evaluate what you're doing daily and get feedback from different sources, which I'll hustle up and tell you about. Um, there are different gates of evaluation. Uh, just briefly, I consider, when you think of all the factors and ways that you can evaluate things, I say they fit under four dimensions. Technology, business, intellectual property, and resources. And you see the four questions there that you, you can have as takeaways, but those are the most fundamental questions that I, I ask anytime I'm looking at innovation. And the deeper I'm in on an innovation, the more questions I bring out of the closet and put them in those four, four bins. Um, and I think I'll skip over that now for the interest of time. But I'll be happy to follow up with you on more details. And I have a paper that talks about this uh, process in detail. The final part of this process I want to talk about, which is really what drove me to, uh, to write it up in the first place, is the extract. The notion here is that to get value out of an innovation, there's more than just the famed new venture. Now, everybody thinks about starting a new company, you know, you know, going IPO, starting a new company, getting bought, that kind of thing, and all that sounds fantastic. But, you know, when you start looking at the odds, the odds are not in your favor to start a new venture and make any money. There are other ways to extract value. Now, if you work at 3M, for instance, or DuPont, or you know, GE, whomever, you know, chances are you're going to be more likely to roll out a new product. You know, and a new product is an innovation and can add value to you and your firm. Uh, we've talked about new ventures. Transfer, technology transfer, licensing. If you came up with an invention today, I mean, you could start a new venture, but if you've just got like a simple product, maybe you're better off licensing that to a large firm and getting a quarter for every dollar that they make in profit. Uh, this guy that I'm helping, excuse me, on um, with a boating innovation, uh, he's got a, a boating accessory that can go on every center console uh, boat. There may be 20,000 of those sold per year. Uh, he could go out and pedal those, but, you know, good luck trying to find everybody that's got a center console boat. Or you could go to a boat manufacturer or distributor or a dealer, and they reach out and touch everybody who buys or has a boat. So why not license it to them? It can't always be done, but guess what? License it, take your check, you know, buy your yacht, do what you have to do, but you don't have to go through the arduous path of starting a company because it doesn't always, uh, it's not quite as rosy as people make out. And then brand, I don't have time to go into a lot of detail. The idea is there are ways that you benefit your firm by coming up with a new idea. It doesn't make anybody a lot of money. Uh, it's, it's not... You know, fancy, it's not going to create an IPO, but you know, it, it shows you've got a culture of innovation. And anytime you help your firm, you're enhancing the brand of that firm. And uh, I'll skip the example on that. But this is kind of a quick introduction to the Innovation Edge framework. Uh, and so now let me kind of hit my top 10 list and then we'll uh, have a few questions. So, number 10, uh, begin with the end in mind, but don't begin with the end decided. Now, what does that mean? That's really a follow-up on my last comment that there's many ways to commercialize an idea. You don't have an idea and say, ooh, I'm going to create a startup. That's the wrong way to think. You know, certainly, if you uh, have a passion for starting a business, then more power to you. But that doesn't mean it's the best way to get money out of your idea. I think much homework needs to be done before you figure that out. Um, new ventures, you know, if you're looking for the, you know, if you're just swinging for the fences, analogy, then by all means, New Ventures is the way to go. That's how you get your biggest hit. Um, however, if you're looking for more doubles and singles, then tech transfer tempers your risk-reward trade-off. You're not going to make the big home run 
but you will get some money in the process, or you may likely get some money in the process. Uh, new product development, however, as engineering managers, you know, I'm willing to bet that most of you, um, you know, some of you will become entrepreneurs, but most of you are going to work for the IBMs and uh, Alcatels or whomever of the world. So new product development is what you're going to experience. Um, and so obviously that's, you know, different than some of these other things. We've talked about brand enhancement. Um, number nine, it's never too late to kill a bad idea. So screen and evaluate every day. Um, I don't have this uh, necessarily quantified, but I have read and just by talking to people in general, every step you move forward in an innovation process probably costs you an order of magnitude more in time, more in uh, money, more in effort, and, uh, and you know, just, you know you're, you're losing more minutes of your life. Um, so it makes sense to kill an idea at any, at any stage. However, as you might guess, particularly in a large firm, the further you get to rolling out a product, the train's left the station. You're not going to change things. And people will pay a lot of lip service to, you know, we're, oh yeah, we've got a quantitative screening process. But, you know, somehow, you know, the boss's idea seems to get in there. And, it, you know, the numbers seem to always work out with the boss's idea. Or if there's a lot of, been a lot of money put in, people say, well, you know, um, they don't think about sunk costs. They just think about, well, you know, we put so much money in, we have to continue. But that's really, when you think about it from like a net present value point of view, it's really not the thing to do. Um, we've talked about stage gate some. Uh, we've talked about derailing the train and then the pet project syndrome. So point number eight, gradually increase your granularity of your evaluation process. Um, here, there are lots of different ways to screen ideas. I've talked a little bit about uh, my process, at least the framework for having the four buckets and you have questions, you go through it. Um, a business partner of mine, Laura Shoppy, and myself, this was the five-factor process you know, I talked about that University of Illinois experience and the 700 pieces of IP. Um, we used a five-factor process. You know, how, how attractive is it in the market? Intellectual property, level of development, um, you know, how, where is it on the concept to product continuum, uh, things of that nature. We ranked all these innovations on a 1 to 10 scale, and uh, that's how we kind of moved forward to uh, kind of separate the wheat from the chaff, so to speak. So you should always be more granular as time passes. Uh, and this is just, there's a 42-factor process that uh, this Innovation Institute comes out, comes out with, and uh, you can't read this here, but I, like I tell my class, I don't think you want to get this granular. Good luck answering 42 questions, particularly like what we did. Can you imagine ordering, answering 42 questions about 700 innovations? That doesn't really happen. Um, so never underestimate the heart of the champions. Uh, <laughs> borrowing from, uh, who's that, I guess, um, Rudy Tomjanovich or somebody like that. Uh, the idea here is, here's some interesting quotes. You know, the world's made up of three people, those people that, uh, be sure I read this, get this right. Make things happen, watch things happen, and wonder what happened. That's always one I, you know, remember from my youth. And so you clearly want to be the kind of person that makes things happen. And as I talk to entrepreneurs, mostly, and I ask them, you know, what do you think separates you from other people? I had one recently tell me, you know, Joey, the only difference in me, I'm a simple guy, they said, I do what other people talk about. And I thought that was pretty cool. So he, he didn't claim to have any great you know, market insights or things, but you know, where other people talk about something being a good idea, he gets up and does it. And I think that's, there's a lot to be said for that. Of course, there's a lot of people in the poorhouse for that too, aren't there? But um, venture capitalists, if you've had a VC come in here, which I know you have, Brooke Byers and some people like that, you know, they always tell you, I mean, slide number one, uh, venture capitalists invest in people, not technologies. Um, why is that? Because they understand this, 
this notion of kind of the heart of a champion and the need to adapt in this whole evolution process. What you start with is what, not what you finish with. So you need people to, uh, to adapt. We've talked about that. Uh, it takes a team. Just briefly mention there are two books that if you're into networking, or rather you should be into networking, there are two really good books. The left more about networking, the right about social, uh, kind of the social processes in entrepreneurship. This uh, Never Eat Alone uh, is a book that really, to me, it's Southern Hospitality means networking. It talks about the need to go out and do good for others and help people, not because, you want to, not because you're keeping score and you expect them to do something for you, but really the notion is if you do good things, it's going to come around and, and, and pay back in the future. So that's the executive summary there. And there's Andrew Hargadon's uh, How Breakthroughs Happen really talks, it breaks down the notion of, uh, you know, Thomas Edison. Everybody thinks about, you know, what a glorious uh, inventor he was, you know, genius, most patents in the history of mankind, unless he's been, maybe he's been recently surpassed. And uh, it's like, you know, he and all his splendor is how Menlo Park got start, started. Well, what you find out, was he a smart dude? Yeah. But he had a team of people working with him, and he eventually became more of an evangelist for technologies and raising money and things than just the guy camped out in the lab. So that book goes through much more than that, of course, but that's a fantastic book. Kind of, um, you know, as Americans, we have this kind of cowboy uh, belief that, you know, you've got the great inventor, and that's just really not the case. So that's a great book. I'm going to meter myself here. Um, always be customer-centric. I think I've hit that point enough, but you, you couldn't hear it enough. Um, now, what is this? This is a value chain, uh, and some people call it technology food chain, and this is just one example I pulled from a, cl a client document, and they were okay with it. Um, what's a value chain? This is an idea, this is the printed circuit board market, and here are the makers, here are people who buy printed circuit boards, and here are people who use them. Um, you know, I, I said if you only take one thing away from the course to think about customers at the center, well, take two things away. If you are doing any kind of commercialization project, you need to figure out how to write the value chain. And it doesn't have to be pretty, it can be sloppy, you can do it on a napkin. But any kind of market you're looking at, and you'd be amazed at how many working people can't figure this out. It seems pretty simple once you see it. Um, whatever market you're in, go all the way to the raw materials. You know, and think about, I notice I left the raw materials out here, but think about the, the highest level, the simplest product. If you're in the semiconductor industry, it's the people who make the wafers. Okay, and then who buy those wafers? And then whatever, wherever the wafers go, who buys that? And can you continue yourself all the way down where eventually there's customers or original equipment manufacturers at the bottom? That will help you to understand a lot of things. If you were going to license, you ask yourself, well, what kind of person do I license to? If, I, if you're going to sell product, you figure out, well, who would buy my product? Um, if you're trying to sell your company, who would buy my company? Um, and I, I cover this in my class. I have not yet. But this is a... This is a great, simple little tool that everybody should use when you're thinking of uh, commercialization. Um, number four, do your homework. Evaluate, evaluate, evaluate. And let me jump over to one thing in particular. And uh, we'll have a lot of time to cover this, it turns out. But uh, Jeff has stressed to me, he's like, he's a Joey, either today or some other time. He said, cover with these kids how you do research. He said, because, you know, I think sometimes the students think that doing research means you go to Google and spend a little time. And that, that one thing that he senses is that maybe you're not quite sure how to determine what is a good hit, number one. And number two, you know, what would you have done before Google? You know, throwing up your hands? 
So I think what you need to appreciate is Google is outstanding. I would say if you only can use one thing, obviously you would use that or a comparable search engine. However, there's a lot of other stuff on this screen. As you can see, Google's just one thing. So let me break this down a little bit. And uh, before we run out of time, let me say that one thing I agreed with Jeff, I'm going to come up with a teaching note for my class that is specific to how do you find information, particularly on markets, companies, things of that nature. And you know, how do you develop keywords and things like that, because I'm reasonably good at it. And so I'm going to develop a teaching note for my class, and we'll distribute it to everybody. Um, so I'm not going to belabor that here. But let me just hit the high-level framework. Here's how I look at the world when it comes to I've got to figure out something. I've got to find information. Okay, you've got internal information and external. So once again, you work at 3M. You've been assigned a project. Guess what? You want to go inside the company to see what the company knows before you go outside the company. So rocket science there. External, there's a world outside of the company that you want to interrogate. So what's the other dimension? This is very MBA-esque. If if, as long as you can do two by two matrices, you can get an MBA, so it's real, real simple. Um, there's secondary information and there's primary. So what is it? Secondary, I kind of remember it. It's like secondhand information. Somebody else got it together, you're just reading about it. Um, so that secondary information, primary, you're hearing it straight from via phone, via whatever. So what are all these little side things? Within each matrix, sources, here are the sources. So this is where you get the information. The method is how you extract it. So, and obviously I'm gonna read all this to you here, but we'll just take one, one cell as an example. Internal, secondary information, the sources, you got management reports, presentations, any kind of document inside a company. That's something you need to go in and figure out what's in there. How do you do it? You look through it. And you seek permission. A lot of doctors can't get your hands on or you'll get fired if you do. So it might be smart to ask. Um, the only other cell I'll cover is external primary. This is what nobody wants to do. So external primary, what are the sources? Experts from industry, academia, government associations, magazine. People outside that might have an opinion about what you're doing. Okay, how do you get up with those people? Phone, email, meetings. I mean, you, you know the drill. It, it's not that people don't understand how to do this. Everybody's scared to do it. People hate the thoughts of, well, what's my reason for calling somebody? I don't like to get on the phone. Isn't that telemarketing? But I can assure you, if, if there are insights in the marketplace, you're not going to read about it. You're going to talk to somebody about it. And any time I'm doing a project and I talk to people, um, most of the time people say, well, you know, you're the expert. Do what you think. But once in a while, you know, somebody kind of wants to get in your business when you're consulting and say, well, aren't, don't you think you should do so-and-so and so-and-so? And I always tell them, you know, you need me to call people or need my staff to call people. And uh, they say, well, couldn't you do that through secondary resources? I say, look, trust me. And any time you call people, good things happen. Uh, I've got one, ex one example with my class, actually. I gave an example where there was a paint company trying to develop a new innovation. Their job was to go out and do secondary research to figure it out. And the class did a magnificent job doing the secondary research. And it was actually based on a true story. I had done the same secondary research. Um, it was to identify potential partners. The class came up with 40 different companies. I had independently come up with a lot of different companies. My phone calls, nobody, including myself, had identified the partner that I had put in touch with my client in which, you know, good things are happening. And so out of 25 students, myself and somebody else had helped me at one point, nobody found the magic company. So does that mean we're not smart people? No. It means that there's some things you just can't read about. You have to talk to people about it. So 
uh, I can't go into this in more detail now, but this is something that I'll talk about um, in this teaching note that I send around. Uh, what is this diagram? Well, as a professional, here's the order I go into. I look at internal secondary first because, you know, whatever's lying around at a client site or a company, chances are you shouldn't reinvent the wheel. The next thing I do is talk to the people inside. You don't talk to them first because people get annoyed when you ask them about something you could have read about. What's the next thing you do? You go external, Googling around what you folks I'm sure are magnificent at. Um, you do that because the next step, goals to get to four. But you just go through three largely to identify who do you talk to in four. And also, um, oh, you don't want to be a complete idiot when you talk to somebody in the market. You talk to an expert and you don't want them saying, well, have you read the basic paper that everybody's read on this topic? You want to say, absolutely. And that's what you did in number three. So what do you do as students? Well, you do something like this. Everybody loves number one. You love doing paper research. Um, you then will go inside, like at the university, maybe you'll go to the library or you'll ask Jeff or Brad about something. And then in the size of the circle, sort of the energy you expend, so to speak. Um, maybe, maybe how transparent, more transparent, maybe the worse you do it. Um, number three, maybe you'll ask somebody inside, but you don't really want to ever get to number four because that's kind of taboo. But number four, as you saw, is where I want to get as a professional. So that's really a different kind of paradigm shift you need to make. Uh, as we come to the home stretch here, um, you should employ the power of primary research. Um, why? Because you get hot off the press customer impressions and true insights. And you can get this presentation as a takeaway to read the others. Um, number two, understand your competitive advantage. I guess I said, you know, remember the customer at the center. Uh, what was that second thing I said to remember? Anybody remember? See how well you're listening. That remember the customers at the center and, oh, the value chain, I believe. And then the third thing is understand your competitive advantage and how to communicate it. Um, I was in a presentation fairly recently, actually, in which a lot of really smart people, <laughs> I mean, PhDs and, you know, hands off to them, they're smarter than I am. Um, they were talking about their innovations. And honest to goodness, after 15 minutes, I, to this day, do not understand what their offering was. I mean, they talked a lot of good stuff, but I... And I'm a relatively intelligent person, do a lot of business plan competitions. I could not understand their offering to the marketplace. So if I can't figure it out, you know, what do you think about a venture capitalist or an investment banker down the road or a potential customer? You know, understand how you're better than other people. And if you think what you're doing is so unique that nobody else does it, then, then you're naive. Either somebody's doing something similar to what you're doing and you're better, or you're replacing something else, but either way, there's some competition going on. Um, so you've got to understand it. Um, this is something from Jeffrey Moore's book. We'll skip over that for now. Number one, so what's of the top ten list, what's the number one thing you should think about doing? It's the art of telling your story. And I borrowed this line from Rick King, who's a, a guy who was sort of a mentor of mine at one point in my career. And we used to give this talk to people who had received government money, but... Um, they received government money a long time ago, and we were coming to check up on them, saying, well, you know, how are things going now that the money's gone? You know? And we, t we gave them this seminar saying the art of telling your story. What's the art of talking about your innovation and getting people excited about it? And so we had kind of a whole, um, and he's a far better presenter than I, so it actually went well. Um, Greg Hopper is a guy that came to my class and, uh, a couple weeks ago and talked about marketing. 
technical marketing. You're taking a class on marketing, but the idea is how is it different to market a technology aside from, from a product? Because a technology is a capability from which many products can emanate, and a product's a product. Um, so Greg's got what I think is a, it's a nice crisp of three questions. So what are they? Um, who is it for? You've got an innovation. So who is it for? Why should they buy it? And why should they buy it from you? And as you see the differential between these two questions, from you, you know, just because you offer something doesn't mean you're the best person to offer it. So you need to communicate that. Um, features versus benefits versus applications. Um, as I mentioned in class, I think it's Theodore Levitt from Harvard. Uh, I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something like, you know, people don't buy the drill. They buy the whole makes. And I'm sure you've heard that. Uh, Marketing Myopia, which is a, definitely a classic if you haven't read it. Something you should Google and uh, read sometime. Um, it's a, the idea is benefits is, is the value. It's what people want. The feature just enables it. And then application is the market in which it's used. So you really need to know how to differentiate the difference. Um, I've given seminars before exclusively on how do you write a technology brochure. So how do you take your um, innovation and break it down into features, benefits, and applications? And that's actually the next assignment for my class to do that. And it sounds easy, but it's really, really hard. Um, and it seems like the more technical you are, the harder it is. Um, so in closing here, before we have some Q&A and we have a little extra time, I think, tell a story be interesting, show your passion, and be enthusiastic. Um, I forget who said it, but maybe it was Shakespeare who said, uh, nothing great was ever achieved without enthusiasm. Uh, you could, Ralph Waldo Emerson, now that I think about it. Um, and, and that's the truth. And, and fortunately, you've got enthusiastic people like Brad and Jeff in charge of this program. And so um, take that enthusiasm that they have and channel it in everything that you do. And if you ever have to commercialize an idea, remember to be excited about it because it's a, it's a great thing to do. So um, uh, that's the end of my talk. Let me entertain some questions from you. Not everybody at once. Yes? So where do you see the future Yeah, I see a good question. I see myself doing two things. One, what's the sad thing is the most fun work out there is working with Joe Entrepreneur. But you have difficulty getting paid by Joe Entrepreneur. So what you have to do is get uh, uh, situated enough financially so that you can kind of you know do Robinhood pricing so that you can afford to work with Joe Entrepreneur. So I see myself doing two things, continuing to work with large firms uh, because I enjoy it and it's good business and there are a lot of things to be learned. But I increasingly like doing business uh, in two ways. One, with smaller innovators, helping them to commercialize things. And also, this is more of a how you get paid, but I, I, I like increasingly doing things, what they call contingency work, where I get paid when you get paid. So work with an entrepreneur. You know, Once you're sold on the idea, say, tell you what, I'll help you sell it, and I'll take a quarter or a third, and if nothing comes of it, you know, I'll cover my expenses, and we'll... You know, it was, it, we'll chalk it up to experience if I don't. Because there, you've really got skin in the game, and your heart's really in it, and it's kind of exhilarating. So I see myself doing more of that. Um, but uh, I always see myself in this innovation space. I've kind of built 15 years on it and really like it. So I'll always kind of work around that. Um, what other questions do you have? Yes?
how to make that choice. Yeah. Good, good question. And it will vary a little bit depending upon whether you're a, like a large firm or a small, small firm. Um, you know, one's about your personal interest, but just strictly you kind of, you know, what's appropriate. The more you've just kind of got a, uh, like a one-hit wonder, if it's a product and it's not a platform, you know, why build a company around, like for instance, this, this boat thing I'm doing. This guy's got an accessory that goes on boats. It's one thing. And it's not like he's going to build a platform from that. It's not like he's got a new material that can go across different innovations. He's got one thing. That is something I would license. There's no question. If you've got something that's more of a platform uh, that has the potential to spawn multiple, multiple products, um, that's something more for a company, more appropriate in my mind. Um, you know, for instance, I know a guy that started a business and he's got a whole um, battery. He's uh, like a chemist, I guess. He's got a whole battery of coatings. The guy has got coatings on the uh, B2 bomber. He's got them on uh, uh, windmill blades. He's got them on the bottom of boats. He's got them everywhere. So that clearly is something that had potential for, uh, for more breadth. The other thing to be mindful of is, if you've read this Innovator's uh, Solutions book, the more disruptive your technology is, the harder it is to get somebody to believe in it. Um, in a classic story is this Chester Carlson, I believe it is, um, started a company called Haloid Corporation that was the, is actually what became Xerox. They actually took that idea and shopped it around to IBM and Kodak, and everybody said, nah, I don't think it's going to make anything. Well, $20 billion later, you've got Xerox. Clearly, it made it. So that's an example that, you know, I, I talk a big game here about going out and getting feedback from the market. But the key is, I, I'm saying it's important to get feedback. I'm not saying the market's always right. Sometimes you're smarter than the market. I think uh, uh, Sony and the transistor radio maybe is a, a different example. So, so to your question, if there's something that you really start to realize is truly disruptive, you, that may be something that's not a matter of should you or not. You may be the only person that believes in it. You may have to start a company in that case. It's a very good question. What other questions do you have? Tony? Yeah, I just said, well, I just said nonlinear. And, and the reason I said that, uh, linear in that, you know, the stage gate, you know, clearly there's a sort of serial process you go through, not, you know, being negative about it, just the way it is. This is more, I mean, I sort of see this, I have this posted on my, uh, you know, sort of uh, tag board. And when I'm working on a project, I kind of get up there and, you know, look at the, um, the framework. And it makes me realize, well, you know, maybe I realize we're drifting towards a new venture. And we ought to be thinking about licensing. Or maybe... Oh man, we've forgotten about um, the human factor. You know, we just lost the in inventor on the job. How's that going to have an uh, impact? Or what's the environment? You know, what's the regulatory environment? It's really more of a checklist to be sure you don't slip up and forget something. For instance, one thing I see a lot of when I do uh, work for universities, you've got uh, I go through like a triage process. You wouldn't believe. Like, like people will go forward and be working on innovation, and they'll then at some point a patent attorney walks in and says, "Well, you know, do you have any IP coverage?" And people say, "Well, you know, I don't know." To be sure, we do. And then you go look, and the inventor published, and it was more than a year ago, and they got nothing. And so everybody's been spending their time working on something. And that's not to say you have to have IP coverage for everything, but a lot of things it's pretty nice. So so you should do some triage up front and, and remember IP. So I've got IP on my list. You know, on a stage gate, maybe you'd kind of forget about IP after a while. Where here, it's just a little checklist. So really, they're, they're things, it's not one versus the other. It's more, they would be used in tandem. Does 
Yes. Yeah, yeah, or, or, or at least consider them. Because there'll be some things you can't really develop, but, um, but yeah, you try to keep it all in mind at the same time. Well, why don't we uh, thank her?